Good to be together. And uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, we're, we're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you as you're with us. We are in a series uh, on the church, a topical series, uh, usually the exception rather than the rule for us. Um, we'll be back into Genesis starting with the new year. Um, so we are almost through the whole series. There are two messages left. I, I hope, I pray that it's been helpful to you. I trust uh, God in his word to be effective. And we've looked at different topics from the scriptures on the church, the nature of the church, the purposes of the church, the power of the church, its polity, its people. And today I want to talk about the church's practices. And you might be thinking it sounds repetitive because you're already talking about purposes and the polity and the people and aren't our practices already there? Um, and I would say, well, yes and no. They are there. We've talked, of course, about the practices, but we haven't had a message on the practices per se. In other words, what, what does a church do? What are the things the church is actually supposed to do? What's on the calendar during the year for a church? And what isn't? And how do we know the difference? And by the way, this is a challenging topic to sort through because there's all sorts of ideas out there. And I would submit that each of us have been influenced by the ideas that are out there. And some of the ideas are better than others. Um, there is the reality out there of, of churches that seem to do everything. I, w I visited a church some years ago in the South. The church had a whole campus. It didn't just have a sanctuary with some classes, but it had a whole campus. There were multiple buildings. There were, were parking lots and roads around. It was like a college campus. And on that campus, this church did all sorts of things. It had a coffee shop, a school, a, a uh, cafeteria, um, and other other things. I know of churches that have um, swimming pools and daycare facilities and locker rooms and even restaurants. I checked the website of a very large church um, in the south, which is usually where you'll find the very large churches, and they had this for their uh, recreational activities that the church itself offered. Actually, if you can put that slide up, uh, it listed, if I, put it, if I include it, maybe I didn't. Um, there it is. So for the fall, you have men's basketball, men's softball, four versus four co-ed volleyball, taekwondo, a dove hunt, youth golf clinic. Uh, the summer, uh, actually the spring, men's softball, taekwondo, a hog hunt. The summer, co-ed softball, men's softball, pickleball, taekwondo again, uh, youth soccer camp, after VBS cheer and sports camp. Winter, men's basketball, upward basketball and cheer, I don't know what that is, and taekwondo. These are all recreational activities in the church, like this is official church stuff. Now, besides these sorts of things, there are other ministries that churches do that, that perhaps are more substantial in your mind, things like food pantries and homeless shelters, affordable housing, centers for the arts, creation care, uh, social justice activities, and many other ministries. Actually, for years, from like the late 1800s until about 1950, it was common for a lot of churches to actually have a bowling alley in the church. Um, Anyone here grew up in a church that had a bowling alley in the church? So uh, St. Joseph's School actually in Haverhill has a bowling alley in it uh, as, as an example of this. It was common, and that's actually the first slide. If you saw my title slide, it shows a bunch of nuns bowling. Um, so all this begs the question, what should a church do and what shouldn't it do and why? And what I mean by that is the stuff that's on the calendar practices of that church. So we're going to look at God's Word because God's Word is sufficient for us in this question. 
Let's pray, and then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. Lord, we thank you that you guide us through your word. You care about what we do. You care about what's on the calendar, and you want us to thrive in you. You want us to carry out the mission you've given us, and so thank you for your word. I pray you'd help me, Lord, uh, to, to teach and proclaim your word. I pray for clarity and, and just the ability to understand and to grasp this important nuance uh, for the health and the fruitfulness and faithfulness of our church. Uh, we thank you, Lord. You care about us and you're with us. So bless this time together. Uh, lead me, use me, and glorify your worthy name, we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God's word from Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. What this passage teaches us, alongside the whole Bible, and we'll be looking at some other scriptures, that the chief practice of a local church is to make disciples for Christ-like ministry in all of life. The chief practice of a local church is to make disciples for Christ-like ministry in all of life. And so I want to dig into this. I want to talk about making disciples. I want to talk about Christ-like ministry. Those are the two points for this message. So first, making disciples. This passage is at an important transition point in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul has been talking about the, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the good news of Christ, uh, the reality that God has planned this from eternity past to send his only son to rescue his people, that, the, that Christ would take our sins upon himself, die for them, satisfy the holy justice of God on the cross, paying the right and appropriate penalty for our rebellion against a perfectly good God and our sin against one another. That Christ would atone for our sins and then rise again victorious over sin and death. Ascend to the heavens and reign until he puts everything under his feet ultimately. Reign for the sake of the church. So he's been talking about that and some of the implications of it. And he talks right before this passage actually uh, in chapter 3 about God doing uh, this glorious work beyond our imagination. And sometimes we, we are familiar with that verse, the promise of, the one, of God doing that. And we think in other terms, but the application really is the church. This, this work according to the power of Christ within us, is the work of the church. And so it transitions into this section about the church. And then it will transition out of this section about the, the church as far as the, the particulars of, of the gathered church into life in Christ. So the rest of Ephesians is really about application. So this is a hinge point, an important hinge point that tells us a lot about what we're called to as a church and a lot about our practices. So as we look through the text, we meet the, the five or four different 
roles, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. That's a compound word, most likely meaning the, the shepherd teachers. Or we use the word, uh, the, the Latin word for shepherd pastor. It's the same word. Shepherd teachers. So most likely there are four roles. We meet these four roles. And they are given by the ascended Christ to the church. And they're given for a purpose, right? Verse 12, and please have your Bible in front of you if possible. Verse 12, their purpose is to what? To equip the saints. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So these offices, these roles, these, these individuals who embody these things are given to the church to equip the saints. Now there are different roles here. The apostle, uh, speaking of the capital A apostles, I believe, the, the apostles who, were, who knew and met the risen Christ, were commissioned by the risen Christ, were authorized to speak of the word of God, and were empowered with, with incredible supernatural power to start the church. They are the ones who are given to equip the saints. They are the ones given to start the work. And and though this role is, is no longer around us because of the reality of having the requirement to meet with the risen Christ, the, the gifts and the, and the function still happens in the church. Churches are still to be started, and there's similar giftedness that God gives. There's the prophets, those who, who encourage people uh, in line with the good news of Christ. There's the evangelists. Uh, they, these are ones who bring the good news to, to unbelievers and, and equip the church with the good news. There are the shepherd teachers, those that watch over the sheep and instruct the sheep. These roles are given to equip the saints. That's an important understanding. Paul is transitioning from the wonder of the gospel and, and, and its implications into the specific application and the hinge point is the reality of these people given, these roles given to the church. Now, by the way, today we would understand again that the apostles and perhaps the prophets as understood per se um, were for that New Testament church. Evangelists, uh, we don't see any office of evangelists functioning in the New Testament, so I think that role continues in certain ways. But, but we see in Scripture as we look at the, among these roles, the ones that are given instructions for appointment are the shepherds, shepherd teachers. And so the equipping today would be mainly through the shepherd teachers who pastors. Deacons are also to be appointed. They are ones to help out in, in ministry. And so, functionally today, pastors, pastor teachers are given to equip the saints. That's their job. That's in some ways the, the, the summary of their job. They're to equip the saints. Uh, the word equip is a good translation of the original word, but the original word carries with it perhaps a little more meaning than how we might understand equip, because we tend to think equip is like get equipment, get, get the thing you need, but, but there's a more holistic sense here. It's the idea of basically giving the saints everything they need. Everything they need for the job they're called to. To fully equip, to fully outfit the saints. That's the idea here. I think of what goes on with a soldier. Uh, you join the army, you go to basic training, you're trained through basic training how to be a soldier, how to, how to do these things, how to think, how to act. You go through advanced individual training where you learn more about your particular role. You then join a unit where you're fully outfitted. You get everything you need to carry your role as 
a soldier in that particular role. That's the idea here, that the pastor teachers are to equip the saints in this way, to make sure the saints, the, those who belong to a local church, those who are set apart in Christ, those who have come to know Christ, are fully outfitted to do their work. Just some side points here that are helpful in understanding the, what we are called to in the practice of the church, just to, to recognize maybe some other details in Scripture about the pastor-teacher. If you were to look through the New Testament in places like Acts chapter 20, 1st and 2nd Timothy really being letters uh, that instruct pastors and leaders how to, how to act, Titus chapter 1, 1st Peter chapter 5, as you look through these different relevant passages, which we won't touch on today, you, you, will, you will see that the central function of a pastor-teacher is really to make and maintain disciples. They are to equip the saints. They are to, to lead people to faith in Christ. They are to equip those saints. They are, they are to grow those saints up and help in certain ways. Their shepherding is not about providing all the needs of the sheep. It's qualified. It's limited. There's a limit to the scope of the role of a pastor. Please hear that. Not because I'm trying to get myself out of work, but because I think this has a very important bearing on how we understand what the church does and doesn't do. And so the, the pastor is, is to serve in a qualified way in the arena of spiritual oversight, protection, and leading God's people through instruction and exemplifying faith and obedience. And if you search the scriptures, you don't find other duties for pastors in the scriptures. You don't find pastors who are responsible to run a food pantry or a Christian school, or job training center. You don't find instructions for pastors to be the coach of the church softball league, nor in charge of the bowling alley. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say those things are wrong. That's not the point. It's just to recognize the clarity of Scripture on the scope of the pastor's duties, and therefore the implications for the local church and what the local church does and doesn't do. Now, the local church, of course, is more than the pastor. That's right in our passage. We're going to get there. Hang on. But it's telling to observe that the, 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 the main leader of a local church is limited in what he's called to do. Now, there's more to it because the, the job is to equip the saints, Right? For what? What's the next part? For the work of ministry. Wait a second, I thought pastors were the ministers. Nope, they're not. Now, they can minister. But who are the ministers in Ephesians 4? Who are the ones being equipped for ministry, to minister? The saints. The saints are. That's profound, profoundly important. The job of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints, to fully outfit the saints for the work of the ministry. They are called to do the ministry. They are the ones who are to do the ministry. Now, there are limitless possibilities for the ministry. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk about this. There are both formal and informal types of ministry. And there really are limitless possibilities. 
But, but there are some particular aspects here in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere in Scripture we need to recognize. And we need to recognize and have the category, which I'll get into shortly, that there is the church gathered and the church scattered. There is the church organized and the church organic. Scripture teaches these things, and, and I hope to convince you that it does. And to understand that in light of this reality that the, the whole church is called to ministry, the job of the pastors is to equip the saints. Now, there are particular aspects here that we're called to that are very clear in this ministry. There are limitless possibilities, but there is an essential function that must happen in any local church that's here. Because it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry for what? Building up the body of Christ. The ministry the saints are supposed to do is to build up the body of Christ. And, and then later on, as Paul's uh, reflecting on this, he, he's talking about every part, when it's doing its part, when it's working properly, builds itself up in love. So when the body is fully equipped and every part is functioning properly, there's a building up, there's a building of something. And this building is both quantitative and qualitative. It's both adding and increasing the, the maturity and of course, that's the goal here, right? To, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until what? So the work is to be done until what? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, singular mature manhood, one body that's mature. This is so helpful and important for us to recognize that maturity in the Bible is not just individual. Probably more importantly, it's the corporate maturity. That's the goal here. Don't miss that. Mature manhood, the body together, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's amazing. That the church, the local church, at the church in Ephesus, every local church is to be built up to a point of maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, that church should look like Jesus. And who they are. And their character. And the body of, of truth that they abide by. And how they act towards one another, how they act to those around them, how they act to the community that they're in, the fullness of the, uh, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's interesting to, to, to read down and, and look how Paul talks about this. He, he says, uh, um, so that they may, in verse 14, so that they may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the alternative is immaturity. And in immaturity, all sorts of things happen, right? Tossed to and fro by the waves. Every little influence, every idea, every problem that's in the culture just pushes you one way or the other. You're, you're tossed to and fro. You don't know which way is up. That's the alternative, carried about by every wind of doctrine, every latest half-truth. Oh, that must be good. Let's go do that. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, the, 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 the insidious sort of things as well carry you away. Paul says in verse 15, rather, rather than that happening, going back to what the church is supposed to be doing, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let's just think through this. Pastor, teachers, 
equipping the saints for the work of ministry. What is that work of ministry? Building up the body. Specifically, what, what, what goes on in the building up of the body? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. As every part relates in their particular gifting and in relationships together, they, they speak the truth in love. The word speak the truth actually is one word in the original language. It's the verb form of truth. We don't have a verb form of truth, right? It's truthing in love. That's what Paul says. Rather, truthing in love, we build the body. This is the core of the ministry of the local church. This is ultimately what ought to be done in a local church, in all the ministries that, that we engage in. This truthing in love together. Now, I could talk a lot about that. Um, it's worthy of a lot of time. It's important to understand this truthing in love is not the mere sharing of facts. This isn't truth sharing in love. In other words, I need to tell you that you've got a piece of food between your teeth. That's not truthing in love. Please do that if it ever happens with me. You're welcome to do that, but that's not truthing in love. It's not sharing Bible verses necessarily, though that is the truth ultimately and to be done. No, the context in Ephesians of the use of the word truth is much more than, than that. It's a bigger picture. It's, it's basically the gospel truth, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, reigning, changing our lives, dwelling in us, the truth of, of Christ and our forgiveness and our relationship with Him and our union with Him, that we belong to Him. We are now in Christ. That's the word the New Testament uses for Christian. Not a Christian, but an in Christ, an in Christ. And being in Christ means that we're forgiven, we're loved, we're safe, but we're also connected to Him and we're dead to our old self. We're to live this new life of faith and obedience and love in profound ways. The letter of Ephesians gets into these details. And so truthing and love is bringing the reality of that good news and its implications to one another, both in teaching and exemplifying its reality. That's what Paul's going to go on to talk about in this letter. Truthing in love in these profound ways. It's in love, so important to remember and to understand. 1 Corinthians 13 would teach us that apart from love, all the truth in the world, all, all the, the, the gift and intelligence and all the right slogans and the right programs and the perfect statement of faith, all these things, we can even die as martyrs on the mission field for that truth, and yet without love, it's nothing but obnoxious background noise at the best. So love goes with truth, because that's what the Lord's like, right? And when we belong to Him, it's truthing and love. Those things go right together. I would love just to take time and just talk through examples of truthing and love. You guys exemplify this in so many ways. I want you to know that. But there's all the more that we can grow in. And um, just to give you one scenario, I have a couple. But one scenario here, um, maybe I'll do two. I'm actually doing pretty well in time. I thought I wouldn't have enough time. Thanks for praying for me, guys. Those who prayed that I could get this fit into 40 minutes, it's working. Um, one example of truthing in love. Um, not, I'm not going to pick on anyone here, so don't worry. Um, we'll call him Matt. Matt is involved, very involved in the church life. 
He's there every Sunday. He's part of the men's Bible study. He's at every event. He actually wants the church to do more events. He and his family live in a nice part of town. They homeschool their kids. The kids seem great. Matt's wife is wonderful. But as you get to know Matt, you notice something. He doesn't have really any meaningful contact with people outside the church. Yes, he works a job with non-Christians. He lives in a neighborhood with people that don't yet know Christ. His family members aren't all Christians. But as you talk to Matt, you get the idea that he really doesn't want to spend much time with non-Christians. And when he talks about uh, those without Christ, he, he kind of leans negative. He tends to talk about what's wrong. Matt is very critical of the culture. That's what you'll hear more about. And so what does truth and in love with Matt look like? It's not just observing what's wrong with Matt. We can see that. That's usually the easiest part. It's truth and in love. And so it means that we love Matt. And first that means we get to know Matt and his situation. We get to understand his life. We get to understand his family, his history. We take time to learn. We take time to communicate our love and respect for him and, and, and for Matt and his family to feel loved and accepted and respected. But sooner or later, as we seek to truth and love, it means being helpful to demonstrate the truth and reality of the gospel to Matt. And sooner or later, I think we would want to probably if we're someone who knows Matt, invite him to some sort of outreach opportunity. Maybe we invite Matt to help out with Alpha. Maybe we get Matt to be involved in the Christmas parade, one of our wise men with the camel. Maybe you interact with Matt over aspects of sermons that touch on our mission. Maybe you invite him to to pray for our missionaries overseas. And I think as you would do these things, you're truthing in love, right? You're demonstrating real ways in your life that you're learning to live out the mission that you're called to. The gospel always produces an interest in the mission because if he's loved us, certainly we must love others this way. And so with Matt, we continued to do this and soon we would find Matt starts to change. Starts to think positively about his neighbors and, and seeing what's good there and wanting to love them and reach out to them in the name of Christ. Starts to live a lifestyle of doing that. That's what truthing in love looks like. Now I could make other examples. I have others, um, but I'll move on um, to talk more about some other aspects. So, so I want us to understand the call of the church and the particulars, the call of your pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry and the call of the saints, that's all of us, to build one another up. And how do we do that? By truthing in love. This is the core ministry of what we're called to do. And it must influence everything we do. It must be the priority as we do all sorts of things. Now I want to talk about ministry proper. And so this ministry is the most important ministry, but it's not the only particular ministry. And so you might ask, well, we could truth and love in a lot of contexts. Sunday morning, of course, being a prime one, but we could do that elsewhere. We could do all sorts of things. Yes, indeed, you can. And I think we need to understand that, that the church is understood in Scripture in two important ways that will help us kind of navigate what we do and don't do as the church gathered and what we do and don't do 
as the church scattered. There are these two aspects of what the church is. The church organized, the church organic. And these categories are important. And just so you know, I'm not alone in this idea. Your pastors would all understand this. Um, church theologians throughout the ages would understand this important distinguishment between the organized church and the, and the organic church. So Herman Bovink, a key theologian, says the church as gathering of believers is manifest to us in two ways, in the offices and means of grace, the institution or the organized, and in the community of faith and life, the organic church. So let's take a look through Scripture fairly quickly at these truths. Well, we've already seen it in Ephesians 4, right? We've already seen it because we've seen the pastor-teacher and the limits of, of his ministry. He's to equip the saints. And, and the essential ministry of the church is, is very specific. Truthing and love. And it's produced to produce maturity in the church. These are things that must happen in the function of the organized church, the church gathered. But then what's going to happen in Ephesians after chapter 4 is Paul gives instruction to the church of how to live. And these are things that are going on outside the gathering, the organized side of the church. It's the church organic in what you do, how you live, how you relate to one another, how you relate to, to your family, how to relate in the workplace, how to relate everywhere else. This forming of the image of Christ, of this mature manhood, is not the end of the work because someone who is like Jesus, both corporately and individually, is going to actually live like Jesus. And there's all sorts of ways to do that. So the ministry opportunities for the church organic are actually limitless. The ministry focus for the church gathered is actually limited. And Ephesians 4 and the rest of Ephesians teaches us this. And there are all sorts of ways that the mature Christian and the mature church as an organic body, a relational body in the world, is to minister where they are. And this mission of humanity starts right in the beginning of God's word. Genesis 1, 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. This is what we were made for, to image God in the world. This is what Christ came to, to restore, the image of God. This is what the church is called to form, the image of God, the mature man. And then that image of God is to do Genesis 1:26 sorts of things, to, to have dominion, to rule, to express what God is like in his creation in all the ways that that can happen. And that is very broad, all sorts of things. It's, it's your ethics, it's your, it's your vocation, your work, it's the arts, it's science. It's recreation. It's everything. That, uh, Genesis 1.26 is very broad. And this is what the church's mission is, to create people and create a corporate people who live in that broad way in ministry and image Christ in this broken world in all sorts of ways. Let's continue to look at some New Testament passages because I want, I want you to, God willing, have clarity here and then we can talk about application. We see this reality throughout the New Testament. If you are to read the first and second Timothy, I would submit to you that these are letters 
mostly about the gathered church, mostly about the church organized, not so much about the church organic. Certainly there's implications there because they're connected in ways we're seeing. And so if you take time to, to read through 1 Timothy, it's very clear. Actually, Paul says explicitly in 1 Timothy that this is what he's after. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, I hope to come to you soon, speaking to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So he's saying to Timothy, I'm writing this, Timothy, so that you, you may uh, know, and really the whole church may know, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And, and so then you look through the letter, and what does Paul talk about? He talks about ways to behave in the context of the gathered church. Not the whole aspect of the church, not the organic church per se. So just an outline, I have an outline I think to show. If you go through the letter of 1 Timothy, you'll find it talks about uh, chapters 1, verses 3 through 20, teaching faithfully, and then praying as a church. And then it talks about the offices of pastor and deacon. It talks about behavior in the gathered church, verses 3, 14 through 16, where I already read part of that. Then again, teaching faithfully. Then caring for the elderly and widows, chapter 5, and we'll talk about that briefly soon. Caring for pastors, and then faithful teaching and living again. And so 1 Timothy is about behavior in the gathered church in these certain ways. We can look into the book of Acts and see similar things. In Acts chapter 6, actually they, they purposefully limit the function of the church in certain ways and divide the functions. And so it says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so we see here in the, in the gathered church, actually, a delineation of ministry where the apostles, and really in a, in a proto-pastoral way, in a, in a way that a model for pastors following, are saying we shouldn't be giving ourselves to taking, making sure the widows are fed in the proper way and people are cared for. So we, the church raises up really proto-deacons, early deacons. And these deacons do that ministry, but the pastors slash apostles do not. So there's, there's a dividing. And this is uh, in line actually with 1 Timothy. One of the vital functions of, of what a church ought to do is to make sure that the widows and the poor in their midst are taken care of. That is a function of the official church we see in Scripture. If we continue to read through the book of Acts, Um, we will see these sorts of things more. The church in Antioch um, was formed by the scattered church. So when the persecution with Stephen happened, so, so Stephen proclaims uh, God's truth prophetically. He gets killed by Paul and his accomplices at the, Saul at the time. Didn't know the Lord yet. Stephen is killed. The church gets scattered. The, particularly the Greek-speaking Jewish people who had lived in Jerusalem with the church at that point, they have to flee. And they get scattered, and as they're scattered, they're not organized. They're just going somewhere where they can be safe, maybe going back to their home cities and so forth. And as they go, 
because they're the church, because they bear the image of Christ, because they're living in the gospel, they tell others. And in Antioch, people hear the good news and the church starts to grow. It's an organic church. It's not yet organized. And then what happens? What does the church in Jerusalem do? They realize, well, something's happened in Antioch, so we're going to send Barnabas up there, one of our church officers up there, to see what's going on. He sees it. He's encouraged. He encourages them. And then he's smart to understand these combinations of organic and organized. He realized these guys need some organization. So he goes and gets a gifted man named Paul, this is some years later, and brings him to Antioch. And there's a team that teaches the church, and the church starts to thrive. There's an organization. They start to focus on these essential ministries. But that church is so effective in the breadth of all their ministries in the city of Antioch that they're well-known. They have an impact there. We see other examples in the book of Acts. One more place to look. And thank you, guys. I'm, I know I'm, like, moving fast. Um, and, and there will be time for questions afterwards. Not, not here, but at the potluck. Please ask away. First uh, Corinthians. We spent time going through this some years ago. We reference these verses often. Chapters 11 through 14 in the letter to the Corinthians is all about the gathered church. It's all about the essential ministries. And so in chapter 11, Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. He's addressing when they come together. They're messing up on many things, on communion in particular in that context. And then at the end of that section, in verse 14, he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, this is how you should worship. And so that whole section is about the church gathered. The other parts of the letter to the Corinthians is really about the whole church, the church organic, in its life together as God's community in the city of Corinth. But if we look through scriptures, we will see that the church organized is limited to what I would say are these six essential ministries. Corporate worship, prayer and sacraments, we have this to project. Um, proclamation and teaching of the word, key discipleship ministries, relational accountability and edification, crisis care for people. I would submit to you that's what scripture teaches us that we're to do as an institution, as an organized church. Scripture limits it to these things. Now, that doesn't mean that we're limited in ministry. As we read the Word, as we look at Ephesians 4, right? As the, as the body matures, there are limitless possibilities for the organic church. And so there's tons of Scripture about the life of the organic church. And most of the 1,000 plus commands in the New Testament are for the organic church, the, the community of God's people, wherever they happen to be, and the wholeness of what they're called to do beyond the gathered, official, organized church. So we see lots of commands in Scripture where, where we... I could just go through tons of scripture. Matthew 5.16, this is what Jesus is talking about. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We are prepared for good works, Ephesians 2 teaches us. 1 Peter chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All these commands 
are to the church organic. And there is endless possibility in what the church organic can do. Now I hope, I hope it's clear first. Secondly, I hope you're understanding how this influences what we do and don't do. I hope it helps you understand King of Grace Church and the choices that we make. Why we don't have a bowling alley. But we want you to go bowling if that's what God calls you to do. And we will support you bowling. And if you want to form a Christian bowling ministry, we would be very excited and we want to do all we can to help you. But the way we help you is truthing in love with you. And praying for you. And coming alongside you in that ministry. This is so important because if we don't do this, we experience what's called mission creep. I don't know if you've heard that word, mission creep. Um, it's not a creepy person who's on mission. It's the idea of your mission expanding in areas it shouldn't. It's a really important concept for any organization. I think of a company, any company, you pick any company and talk about how this might manifest. Think of uh, the Ford Motor Company. The Ford Motor Company is hopefully focused on one thing, making and maintaining Ford vehicles. Hopefully they're good at it. I know our GM friends may think otherwise, but that's their mission to make and maintain Ford vehicles. Now, if you're in the Ford company, you might be thinking, this is going pretty well. We're making these trucks and these cars. Let's expand this thing a little bit. Let's get in the trucking industry, actually, because not only will we make the trucks, but we'll use the trucks, and, and that will help us, and we can expand. And let's get into transportation services. Uh, while we're at it, you know, trucks move things around. Let's get into the trains and shipping parts so we can control that and integrate that. Let's, let's actually start building and maintaining highways because then we can control, you know, the experience for our trucks and cars. Well, why don't we just get into training state troopers as well because then that will help, you know, how they, how they manage the traffic and everything. And what's going to happen? It's going to diminish its ability to do what it's called to do if it starts expanding. It's called mission creep. And I've, ex I've experienced it. My, my wife and I were involved in a wonderful parachurch organization in college whose mission was to reach people who were displaced from their, their homes in their church context, like at college or in the military. They did a great job with that initially, fantastic job of evangelism and discipleship. But they started when we graduated to get into what they call community ministry, which was to do that in the, in the context of a community where there were already other churches. And we tried to make it happen, and it just it failed. And it got to the point where, where we asked, now, why don't we just be a church? What's the difference? And my staff leader, who is now a pastor, retired pastor now, said, we'll never be a church. And so Peg and I decided to leave. We loved the group, but we left because it had expanded and it was mission creeping. It was trying to be the church. And we thought, let's just go be part of a church. And we did. So we need to understand that as a church, just as the Ford Motor Company is tasked to make and maintain cars and trucks, then let the cars and trucks do their thing, right? King of Grace Church, alongside each local church, is to make and maintain disciples. And then disciples are to do their thing. So in conclusion, some implications of these truths, of understanding what we're called to, what we are to do and not do. First, I hope it helps you understand what we do locally here, why we do it. I've had people over the years come and ask me about all sorts of possibilities for ministry. And I think we've been pretty consistent in saying, that's wonderful, how can we help you do that? We've tried to stick to 
and be very selective about a limited amount of ministries we do that are strategic to fulfill the purpose of the church organized, to make and maintain disciples. I hope that helps you understand that, and I hope that helps you feel commissioned to do ministry where God has placed you alongside the church. There are all sorts of possibilities, and I know many of you are already involved in all sorts of things. You don't have to start a new thing either. You can come alongside things that are going on and be a witness there. Thirdly, I imagine, for some of you, this is the first time you've heard anything like this and very different than your church that had a bowling alley um, or whatever. And I want to be able to answer questions and we want to be able to help you process through that. So um, I recognize that. Please ask. Please let me know. The bottom line of all this the chief practice of a local church is to make disciples for Christ-like ministry in all of life. This is the practice of the church and this church as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you guide us. And we thank you, Lord, that the intention of these truths is to make us fruitful. That we can be faithful and fruitful. That we can image you and glorify you. That we can grow into Christ-likeness. And I thank you for this church and its heart. Guide us and use us, empower us, lead us as we minister. And all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.